Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your evening with us. We really hope that we can uh, entertain you and enlighten you uh, to to the degree that you anticipate. want to first, though, thank Ken Quiet Hawk for that amazing introduction. You can find him at nativestorytellers.com. He and his wife have a marvelous website there, and they do have a they have a way of showing how history has been recorded in yet a different way other than the textbooks that are so outdated it's unbelievable. So check it out. It's an amazing site. Uh, We really do appreciate your being with us tonight. If you like this show and the others that we've done, please feel free to go to the YouTube channel and subscribe to us and help us build our numbers. But for now, I have to tell you, Mark has an intriguing man on tonight that, that is quite fascinating and I'm sure you'll find him that way as well. So um, without further ado, good evening, Mark. How are you doing tonight? Hey, Barbara. Oh, I'm fine. Hey. Did you have a nice weekend? So far, so good. Okay. Good. Good. Yeah. Good. A uh, busy week for uh, Nightlight. You know, got this yes. special show tonight, uh, tomorrow night, and Tuesday. Uh, the rest of the month is... You got all kinds of other exciting things going on. It's just uh, August is just going to be a a terrific month. So it is. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm just really excited for all all the terrific guests that uh, we have coming up, and even into September. Um, But yeah, you know, uh, Maria Wheatley is our resident megalithic reporter, and I'm nominating our guest for tonight as our resident deep antiquity dinosaur, and uh, just and and just and our uh, little discussion before the show just bones. <laughs> 
<laughs> maybe we'll even just get a discussion about bones of unicorns. Um, and we may oh. actually uh, get um, some information about uh, bones of ETs too. But uh, you know, we'll see if we can squeeze that in over the next couple hours. But um, Joe Taylor is our guest, and Joe is a musician and artist, and he has painted portraits of bands and brought his talents to creating. Uh, casts of dinosaurs, plaster caster. His work can be seen at the museum he founded in Crosby Town, Texas, the Mount Blanco Fossil Museum. Uh, Joe will be conducting and presenting at the Sons of God Giants of Old Conference in Lubbock, Texas, at the Fellowship Church on August 16th and 17th. Uh, it's coming up this Friday and Saturday uh, night. Uh, yeah, so we want to give Joe an invitation to discuss what you will learn if you are going to be attending. Um, and I think you're just going to learn a lot from someone who has worked very closely with all types of uh, bones. So, hi, hi, Joe. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Good, good. Um, okay, the title of your conference sounds like it's a reference to the biblical Nephilim. That's correct. So you're, okay, uh, you're bringing a biblical perspective to the study of giants, which we've done quite a few times. Barbara loves the subject, too. So, uh, you know, okay, this uh, uh, subject appears in, you know, the early stages of the book of Genesis, um, you know, chapter 6. Uh can you give us a little bit of information about the origins of the giants? Well, my own perspective after a long, long decades of study is that the giants resulted from the, the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, marrying the daughters of Adam, just the normal women. And that's not an accepted <clears throat> position in all of Christianity because some people don't think angels can marry women. Uh, they think it's the sons of Seth <clears throat> marrying the bad daughters of Cain. And there are different opinions as to where uh, where the giants came from after the flood. Have you got them before the flood? And Genesis 6 talks about uh, how they came to be, whichever position you hold. But then there's also the giants after the flood. And they're, they occur pretty quickly within the first few hundred years. <clears throat> so some of the uh, uh, people believe they were they occurred by, by genetic manipulation. Uh, my own feeling is that the same thing happened with a different bunch of these uh, fallen angels. They, they did the same thing as the first ones did. They looked at the women, said they're beautiful. Let's take some. So they did the same thing. The result were more wicked giants. And by the time the Israelites get into the land of Canaan, they're met with a whole 
country there full of people that they record as being as tall as cedars. And a cedar tree, you know, you're looking at 20, 30 feet tall. It sounds completely unbelievable. But, you know, a lot of the stuff in the Bible sounds, sounds unbelievable, uh, like the parting of the Red Sea, Christ rising from the dead, uh, all this stuff, all those things, you know, if, you're, if you have a hard time with unbelievable things or miracles, then, well, the Bible's going to be a struggle for you. And <clears throat> I, I get really strong criticism from some of my uh, Christian fellows, other researchers that I respect, that just are adamant that they could not possibly have been angels to father those giants. And uh, <clears throat> I, I'm sorry, you know, that's my position. I've looked at it for a very long time. And I know it's not always a popular opinion. It's also kind of a scary subject. I've been told it's one of those uh, creepy subjects we shouldn't talk about. But if what we say is true, that these individuals, however they got to be, these giants or the spirits of the giants, the Nephilim or the descendants of the Nephilim, if they're really the ones that have corrupted government, if they're really in charge of world finances and uh, doing all kinds of things like that, uh, environmental things, whatever, wars, etc. If they're really part of that, then we ought to be able to understand it. If they're not, we need to find out. And it's, it's like anything else. Um, people don't disagree with a war as being what it is. War is you go blow somebody's stuff up and kill them, right? Both sides do that. Part right. of a successful campaign in a war is reconnaissance and, and spying out. And research, right? So for anyone getting into a subject like giants, the Nephilim, UFO, aliens, uh, little people, all that stuff, you, you've got to start off with an open mind. Like, well, okay, well, where do I start with the research? And you also have to question every source. Uh, what's the source of this report I'm reading? You know, is it biased? Is it accurate? Can it be verified in some way, et cetera? <clears throat> If you're not willing to go to the trouble to do the, the real research on a subject, you won't get very far or you'll end up with a position that's just easier to take because you're tired of researching. Well, that's not good research. And uh, a lot of times people get tired because they get so much flack from their their friends that they just give up. And, um, well, you know, Texas wasn't founded that way. They didn't find the Northwest Passage that way. The Indians didn't get over here and establish all their nations before us. By saying, well, let's just don't do that. Okay, stay home. So I'm not willing, I'm the most kind of people that uh, uh, <clears throat> maybe it comes along with being gullible and naive. You know, you're willing to listen to anybody's story. And uh, <laughs> case in point, when I went, in, went to New York in 1967, my brother John was there in the uh, acting academy and also worked on Wall Street. He'd been there for a year and, and, these old bums would see me coming. You know, I look kind of like a hippie. And they'd see me coming. They could tell I was a farm boy right off the farm. They'd come right over to me across the street. Hey, brother, you got to dime for a cup of coffee? All this stuff. And after a while, my brother says, geez, Joe, don't give those guys money. And after about a week, I'd, I'd lost all my money to these people, right? So I wise up a little bit. But anytime a subject comes up, uh, be it ever so scriptural or anti-scriptural and all that, I'm going to look into it. If there's any merit to it at all, I want to understand it. Uh, so if you're going to endorse something or condemn something, what right have you got to do that if you don't understand it? So that's I'm following the Bible 
admonition, get understanding and that's and knowledge. That's what I'm trying to do. Okay. Well, isn't there a biblical passage about uh, like knowing your enemy, being able to identify wolves in sheep's clothing, something like that? Uh, doesn't that apply to what you're doing? Well, you're supposed to uh, pray for discernment. You know, not not all spirits are of God. Not everything is true. And uh, there are a lot of uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. You can't just look at it and go, well, there's a sheep. You've know, got to look a little closer. Well, why does he have a black nose and those sharp teeth? You know, you got to be. You have to have some wisdom, and and you may um, go down some hard roads before you learn that. Uh, don't take that turn again. Uh, but we're supposed. You know, the Bible says to count the cost. Anybody goes to build a house, sets down paper, says, "Now, do I have the money to follow through? Can I afford all the materials? Can to have the budget? Because they'll laugh you to scorn if you don't." So, any research project, you have to count the cost. Do I really have time to look into this? Do I have the resources? Uh, do I have the maturity, et cetera? You don't just go off you're blindly into something uh, because you can end up being uh, going down a rabbit hole and, you know, because you didn't check all the sources, you didn't check the negative and the positive, you end up believing something which isn't well-founded and you got to take it all back and look like a fool or you've wasted your time or you become part of a cult that just says, don't tell me what the facts are. I know where I am. I'm going to stay there. And it, humility is hard. It's hard to admit we're wrong about things, especially if you're really trying to be right about stuff. It's a problem with a lot of – I grew up with ministers, you know, of all kinds. And ministers, part of their job is to try and be correct, be right, you know, quote things correctly, understand things correctly because they're telling people how to live their lives like a doctor. You know, a doctor has to know what he's telling you. Because it's your life and health depends on it. Uh, a psychiatrist, and I don't put much stock in psych- psychology, a psychiatrist, same way, they can't just tell you a bunch of stuff. They have to tell you something that they feel like is true. So it's there's a burden on anybody to get into, re- into research to try to come to a conclusion to know whether or not they've reached, uh, they have the right to a conclusion. Okay, well, Okay, so that is segueing us into looking at the evidence of uh, giants. Okay, they're documented in, you know, Goliath is probably the best example from uh, the Bible. Uh, You know, you can read... Mounds for the Dead and uh, Dr. Webb's uh, The Dover Mounds, uh, J- Jason Gerald's uh, Giants, uh, The Ages of the Giants uh, book. Uh, you know, there are numerous examples of giants in North America as well. So, Joe, this is all documented evidence. Uh, why, why aren't people? Uh, yeah, you. Yeah, you've uh, seen the evidence. Why aren't other people um, understanding that 
uh, these people were present in the old world and the new world? Well, I think you have to look at academia of the last, say, 80 or 100 years. <clears throat> when the academic institutions, uh, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, etc., which were originally preacher schools to teach the Bible uh, to people who couldn't afford those expensive books, when they became taken over by liberal mindset, people who questioned the Bible, <clears throat> those that thought uh, the Bible wasn't really history, and, and they also brought in the doctrines of evolutionism, uh, you know, we looked at, at university uh, professors uh, like we looked at, at news reporters at uh, the New York Times or the Denver Times or anywhere else. Why were they printed if it wasn't true? Why would they teach it if it wasn't so? So they got away with that for a long time by telling everybody there's no such thing as giants. That's just a biblical myth. Look around you. You don't see anybody 9, 10, 12, 20 feet tall. And everybody says, yeah, I don't see anybody that tall. We didn't even have seven-foot-tall basketball players 50 years ago, 60 years ago. <clears throat> and now that's pretty common. You know? But those guys are giants. So they don't, they don't hurt the, the, uh, the distractions that the universities have put out. But the universities have resisted this, and the academia. Academia has really resisted the giants thing. My personal conclusion from knowing a lot of academics, a lot of uh, paleontologists, guys with PhDs, real earned degrees and all that, the reason that they resist giants is because you start talking about giants or you put one of the skeletons on display that's nine feet tall or something, People are going to relate that to the Bible and go, well, that's just like the Bible says. That's like David and Goliath. I think that's the problem. They they don't want to admit that, yes, there's giants. We've got a basement full down here. We've been digging them up for 150 years. And why don't you put them on display? Well, because we'll lose our paychecks because we're not supposed to do things to support the Bible. Well, that's not science. Well, then why do you call it science? Well, that's what we call it, but it's not really science because science, as we perceive it, as most people perceive it, is something that allows you to have an open mind, your truth seekers, and all that. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, I used to think that um, uh, before I knew anything personally about the Beatles and Elvis Presley since I was in the music business, I thought, well, these must be good guys. You know, listen to their songs, man, cool songs about love and Moon June and all that stuff. When I begin to find out what they were really like in their personal lives, oh, golly, how could they, how could they make such beautiful music and be such jerk people? And when I got into the paleontology world, it was just with strictly um, evolutionist guys, and they would admit they were atheists. And the same thing, I thought, how can these guys be so smart, have all this learning, and yet they're protecting a myth? And I, I finally one of the one of the uh, one of the uh, guys with the PhD pretty much admitted that they liked to party, and as long as they could console their sciences or their consciences with uh, the idea that there's no God, therefore we don't have to obey the Bible, then they could party with abandon. You know, not like that. Not like that doesn't hurt their conscience, but it's the same way in in uh, other fields of science. Um, you know, they're just people. They like to party. And we we think they're not that way. We think, oh, they're just all so astute and everything. It's not really so. They're like everybody else. 
one of the main things they want is they want to keep that paycheck coming. And if you start telling your boss, hey, this stuff we're doing really isn't true, all the stuff we put out there in the museum, that really not, we know that's not accurate, you can lose your job. Well, who wants that? You know, so most people just back off, go along with the, whatever they're told to do, and just be good Nazis, you know, just follow what they say and and look the other direction. Yeah, so, so yeah, you mentioned evolution and, you know, Goliath is what, something like 15 or 18 feet, uh, you know, extremely tall. And, you know, the uh, Dr. Dragoo and Dr. Webb, Colonel Norris, uh, uh, document um, you know, uh, several examples of seven-foot-tall uh, people found in uh, uh, mounds in the Ohio River Valley. So one of the uh, uh, concepts I, I find really uh, uh, challenging is you get the you know huge uh, giants in the old world, and by the time they get here, it, it seems like there's almost a de-evolution that happened where they're actually you know, still seven seven feet tall, but they are um, you know, fifteen to twenty feet tall. Like you have in the old world, so uh, the theory of evolution really isn't applicable to um, the study of giants. Well, you've you've hit on something there. Uh, <clears throat> one of the problems with giantism is it it goes against the evolutionary lineup of little bitty monkey. You know, ape that turns into a, a man and finally turns into us today at six feet tall. If you stick a giant in there, how are you going to explain that? And uh, if he's got six fingers, six toes, two rows of teeth, a huge brain, and all those, you can't explain those things through evolutionism, so they have to ignore it. I, I really think if people would just get rid of evolution theory and throw it out, all the, a lot of this stuff, archaeologically, paleontologically, would, would clear up. It makes a lot more sense. And, you know, the uh, the tallest giant that I know of in North America was uh, dug up in the 1930s, I believe, or late 20s, down in Seymour, Texas, about two and a half hours east of Crosbyton, in the, the breaks down there, kind of the Badlands. It's all farm uh, ranch country. He was 18 feet tall, and I, I'm sure he was buried in sand, because the clay down there where the dinosaur bones are, where the uh, dimetrodons and things like that, which aren't really technically dinosaurs, the, the matrix there in is so hard, you a man couldn't hardly dig it up. So he must have found one in either drowned and buried in a, a sandbar or was buried in a sand layer. <clears throat> but 18 feet tall, that's 
there's no way you can say, well, that's just a man with a pituitary problem. That's a true giant. I mean, that's a real giant. And you have to, you know, then the Nephilim comes in as a much better explanation. So, <clears throat> but you're right. The uh, All over America, especially up in the, the Ohio Valley, up in that area, New York even, Canada, there were lots of graveyards dug up where there'd be 200 men nine feet tall uh, or a whole race of uh, what we consider to be Indians is seven feet tall. Well, that's only a few centuries ago, but evolutionism says we're the top of the lot. We're the six-foot-tall six guy, especially the white Europeans, the most highly evolved of all. So you get over here and hear these, these uh, brown Indians that are seven feet tall, the whole tribe, and some of their ancestors are nine feet tall. Uh, it don't look like people are getting any bigger. Well, that, that messes up the theory of little to big, which is a mainstay for evolutionism. It's inferior, it had to become more superior. It's little, it had to get bigger. It's simple, it had to get more complex. Well, that's, that's just denied by the fossil record. Whether it's uh, Indians of 300 years ago you're digging up or somebody else that was buried at that time, all of that stuff goes against evolution theory. <clears throat> the biggest elephants are not alive today. As far as we know, they may all be alive for all we know, but we don't see them anywhere. We see, you know, Africans that are the tallest thing around. Uh, but in the fossil record, you've got giraffes that are way taller than the ones today. You've got horses much bigger than today and so on, uh, and also smaller. So <clears throat> the, the idea of giantism is a real problem for academia because they're stuck on that stupid evolution sandbar, and they can't get off of it. And, and Joe, there, there is, is you, you mentioned, um, yeah, just say, like, uh, there was a race of giants, you know, it, uh, you know like here in the Ohio River Valley, New York, uh, so, southern Canada. Um, you know, Barbara and I, uh, you know, you know, talked a lot about that. You know, uh, we think that there that there was a uh, that the giants were a, a separate race too. But when one of the things I've wondered about, or you know, there just doesn't seem to be bones available from giants to do DNA testing. It, do, do you think it, if you know a scuba diver went down to the bottom of the Atlantic and uh, found you know the bones that were supposedly dumped dumped there, and we test tested the bones? Do do you think the uh, bones found in the American mounds would show like that haplo group X that may have migrated from uh, like Western Europe, you know, uh, possibly yeah, the Holy Land area. Uh, you get some uh, Asian. 
influence, you know, maybe uh, an ancestor of the Samoan lady, but there's there there just seems. Do do you think that there's like the, the what what could be considered the native uh, giants associated with the like a Dina tribe were actually from the Holy Land. I I think there are two. Um, I think we're talking about two different groups there. The the uh, the real giants really had to be over eight feet tall, nine feet tall, ten twelve. <clears throat> there are a lot of Indian accounts about that. There's a graveyard up uh, up in, uh, in the northern states. Uh, of these giant men uh, And oftentimes When they're dug up they're partially mummified A lot of times their hair is there It's red or blonde uh, The Indian legends Talk about the color of their hair Being red or blonde So that's not That's not the Mongolian stock That we're, we think of as Indians And we think, think of the Cheyenne The Sioux, the Ojibwa The uh, possibly the Cherokee Comanches and people like that <clears throat> Those are basically The bronze people That probably uh, Originated over in Mongolia Or in that area And then were mixed in with some of the Israelites That came over uh, Some of the Africans on the west coast Some of the uh, uh, white Vikings On the east coast But by and large <clears throat> That Mongolian stock Did well over here So they proliferated They're the ones that pop- populated the United States Before the European mm-hmm. got back over here. <clears throat> so, but the se- the tribes that were average seven feet tall, I think they're just they're just healthy individuals. It's like the uh, Watusi or the uh, Zulu over there in Africa. They're mm-hmm. just uh, they're just a race of tall people. You know that's mm-hmm. just that's just the way they are. But they're not giants. They're not Nephilim. I don't think. <clears throat> I mean, they might be a Nephilim descendant, but I really doubt it. And again, it goes against evolution theory. Because if you're finding healthy people, whole tribes, actually warlike people that are seven feet tall, then that goes against evolution theory. Look at the Germans over there in, uh, I don't know, hundreds of years ago. I think the Romans went to fight them. Here comes out, like they said, 30,000 of these these, uh, white giants, well, white men, seven feet tall, where their hair roached up like a mohawk, I guess, with, with lime is what they said, naked with their swords ready to fight. And they've got the scream or the sound they're making, and it, it nearly <laughs> routed the Romans. Uh, well, that's just, that's white people. They're healthy race. You got the Zulus, a black race. You got the the uh, the North American Indians, the red race. And they're all seven feet tall and healthy, warlike people. You know, again, I don't think that's Nephilim giants. That's that's just uh, good, healthy people. And I'm using the term race there to di- di- differentiate basically uh, different nations. <clears throat> we know there's only okay. one race, the human race, but there's mm-hmm. different parts of it. And uh, <clears throat> But the big, tall ones, the Indians, I've, I've had the Ojibwa tell me that we know who's in those giants. It's those bad, blonde-haired people, you know, the evil giants. We had to kill them all. So they're... They're not, you know, some of them got over here before the Indians as we know them. Some got over here after, I think. But uh, they don't, they didn't leave many records about themselves. Of course, a lot of people haven't. But uh, 
they probably did come from the Levant over there in, the, in Israel, the Middle East, and they probably were redheaded. Uh, we, we think of everybody over the Middle East as being, you know, brown with black hair, but that's not really necessarily so. You know, there's a wider diversity of people than we're often led to believe. We kind of get a, a kind of watered-down version of, of what's going on in the world. In our history books, our rewritten histories, they don't include very much. You know, the most fascinating stuff's left out. Okay, I, 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 I just wondered about that. It, it, it's a, a really fascinating question, and you know what, what you're talking about. You know. Uh, some point in the past, you know, you know, there might have been people from the Levant uh, coming to America, and I, I think when we do our show in a couple weeks on the um, Tuesday the 20th, uh, we will be touching on that subject, it, 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 like with the uh, – Salutrian uh, peoples uh, uh, coming to uh, the uh, the Chesapeake Bay. So, the, so there is the, the scientific evidence being discovered here in America to back up your uh, claim, and a Andrew will go into uh, more detail, but. I, I, you know, you're you're helping me to you know put all this stuff together. It it, it is a, just a, a really fascinating subject. Well, one of the speakers, actually the organizer organizer of the conference, uh, Sons of God Giants of Old Seven, that we're going to be putting on next weekend, Dr. Judd Burton, Professor Burton, mm -hmm. is. Uh, <clears throat> He's done a lot of work on this, like where do the giants go? Uh, there's sort of a consensus, at least uh, at the moment among some of us, that when David uh, was uh, going around warring with the giant tribes over there, that probably because of that, because he was winning and they maybe decided he was just going to continue to harass them or kill them all, that they just left and came to – South America, North America, and other places, and set up these <clears throat> uh, pyramid societies and all that and uh, brought in technology that the average person didn't have. And uh, Judd's done some really excellent work on that. I'm sure he's going to be talking about that more this this coming weekend, uh, next weekend. Um, but, you know, there again, the Bible is the key. Uh, when the Israelites came into the, the land of Canaan, they were afraid of these people, uh, at least some of them were. They said, you know, we can't take this land. These guys are like cedar trees. We're like grasshoppers to them. And I, I don't think that's metaphorical. I don't think that's symbolic. I think they're looking at these people who are extremely tall and, and, and frightening. So for them to be driven out of the Middle East over there by David and uh, his his uh, tribe, uh why would that coordinate with the all of a sudden sudden appearance of advanced cultures, which archaeologists have puzzled over for a hundred years? Why is it that these uh, 
places in South America, China, and other places. All of a sudden, you've got these enormous pyramids with cut stones and things like that that we don't even know how they did it. Uh, wouldn't be affordable today to even try to do it. How'd that happen? Well, again, it gets back to what we know about the fallen angels and their wicked offspring. They had uh, abilities and intellect and power, you know, strength that we don't have, the ordinary person doesn't have. And they could command people to worship them as gods. In fact, uh, uh, you know about <clears throat> um, what's his, uh, the uh, code, not Hammurabi, but um, uh, anyway, one of the guys is probably Nimrod. He he considered himself to be divine because he said he was half he was half angels, therefore he was half divine. Well, you know maybe there's something to that if the whole Nephilim thing is true and they're fathered by angels. That also gives rise to the uh, question of why do the Europeans and other other people have this concept of divine right of kings? Kings deserve to be worshipped or cater to or be made fabulously rich and, and put up with because they're divine. Well, how'd they get that title? Well, they claim to be descended from the Nephilim tribes of, of uh, the Middle East, the, the Anakin and so on. So, okay, so it's not just a made-up title. Maybe there's something to all that. And most people are going to recoil. A lot of Christians will go, well, that's just nonsense. There's nothing to that. Well, you check into it as much as I and some of these other guys have, to begin to see that, well, there is sort of a correlation here. Maybe there's something to all this uh, half-divine business and uh, passing on their their theology, you know, down to even the present day. So it shouldn't be ignored. <laughs> okay, and um, yeah, Joe, Joe, there's uh, – wait, hold on a second. There's – Sorry about that. Um, no problem. You, you uh, have just been t- talking about the uh, research that's uh, been done in the um, you know, Holy Land, and you know, D- Dr. Burton has c- covered some of that, but you know, another one of your speakers, uh, Dr. Aaron Judkins, is uh, – also going to be uh, presenting his uh, research at your conference, and he's done uh, archaeological sabbaticals in the, the Holy Land. What is is his research um, backing up? more of the biblical stories as being accurate? Yeah, I think so. And Jaron, Aaron has been over there to a lot of places and spent a lot of time and a fortune gathering information and trying not to be biased. You know, he's, turned, uh, he's kind of offended some of the researchers uh, because he wouldn't just wouldn't say, no, I, I agree with you because he, he couldn't uh, agree in good conscience with some of their positions. So, you know, he's not he's not a uh, someone just out there looking to, you know, get somewhere by by making some big claims. 
Aaron's a good researcher, and so is Judd. <clears throat> uh, Michael Heiser is also speaking, and I don't really know him. I know his stuff. He's a good researcher. I don't know if I'll agree with everything he says, but, but you know, he's earned his uh, his right to say. Uh, Aaron was over there in Qumran uh, and was in, I think, the last cave where they discovered uh, a little bit of piperus, uh, and, I, and so it qualifies as one of the new caves. So Aaron, Aaron has a has a, a different perspective on all the stuff because he's been there. Uh, he's looked into it, and you know, anytime you get into all this uh, giant stuff, you get into the well. Are they aliens? Are they human beings? Are they half angels? What's what's with all this UFO stuff? Is that alien stuff? Well, Aaron's written a book on that, and. I think a lot of researchers are beginning to say, well, yeah, there is definitely some kind of connection here. Uh, what what really is it? <clears throat> you know, if you get into this thing, I've been in fossils for a long, long time, but I've been studying giants even longer than fossils. And you, you really can't separate the two, or if you do, you're just deliberately ignoring a bunch of stuff. But uh, you get into digging, you're going to get into to giants. You're going to find out. You know, you dig dig up a giant bone, it's just like digging up, digging up a dinosaur or a mammoth bone. Yeah, it's all done the same way. Uh, and a lot of that stuff, you know, was dug up by hand back in the 1800s. And it wasn't properly curated because they didn't know how. They didn't have the materials like we do today. They were digging ditches and tunnels and bridges and things, and they couldn't do a real excavation. They just had to note that here's this giant leg bone and a skull that's twice as big as another man's with two rows of teeth and it ends up in somebody's in a barn and some, you know, in a box somewhere and finally it's destroyed. So a lot of that mm-hmm. stuff, unfortunately, was dug up and recorded rather poorly and not preserved because they didn't know how. <clears throat> but if you get into dinosaurs, you're going to, you're just not going to be able to escape getting into giants. In fact, a lot of the dinosaurs th- themselves are giants compared to anything today. They're giants. And when, and again, I'm not trying to get off the track here, but you get into uh, uh, Gigantopithecus, one of the giant apes of the fossil record. I said at a conference I spoke at here in February, uh, you have a, a Bigfoot conference. I said, you know, what if this is uh, Gigantopithecus that didn't go extinct? That would be trouble for the evolutionists. Other people are saying now there is some kind of a quasi-spiritual being because they can appear and disappear. They go into a portal. Well, okay, that gets off into the uh, you're off into the esoteric now, and esoteric, and you're uh, getting into the spiritual realm, disappearing and appearing. So I don't know. That has raised a big question with me. But at the bottom line, Bigfoot is a giant. They're always reported as being eight or nine feet tall, taller than that some places. They're exceedingly strong. So uh, there again. <laughs> Evolution is just avoid the whole question of of a Bigfoot with a plague. And he's one of the most fascinating enigmatic things out there. And he is a giant, whether he's a, 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 one of the uh, so-called extinct apes that didn't go extinct or just something we don't know about, some Nephilim thing that looks like an ape. You know, it's fascinating. And if you're interested in fascinating things, that's a good study. Yeah, uh, yeah, Barbara. I think we need to do more uh, cryptid shows. 
but uh, well, it, I would I, definitely agree. <laughs> it, it, I, 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 I do, t- uh, Joe. I think you're right about you know, Bigfoot would uh, fall into the category of a giant. Uh, but then there's you get the human you know, giant burials that you know we've been talking about, but you know we don't really get uh, Bigfoot has the you know, so supposed uh, interdimensional portals that uh, you know the explanation for you know why we aren't finding. Uh, the Bigfoot burials. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's a really fascinating subject. It, 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 there, there's not as much evidence that I've seen. Do, do you find uh, something more convincing than the Patterson film? It, it, you know, are there skeletons? You have a little bit of artwork that could indicate a Bigfoot. Yeah, there's some of that. Uh, here a few months ago, I was at uh, out in the uh, uh, <clears throat> Death Valley area with uh, some of the Bigfoot guys, uh, uh, Ron Moorhead, uh, Don Monroe, <clears throat> Uh, and these guys, you know, they're totally into this stuff. Uh, they had also, they showed me a film. We weren't allowed to really talk about it or take pictures of it, but uh, a cleaned up version of, of the uh, uh, Patterson-Gimlin film. And mm-hmm. I, you just have to be in, in a state of denial to say that's a fake. It's not a fake. That was a female, uh, apparently a young, healthy female, uh, that walked by within a few seconds of their filming. It's not a man in a suit. It's a real individual. And apparently there have been a lot of sightings in that same area there. <clears throat> as far as it being a physical being, that you know, this whole thing of disappearing and appearing, uh, Ron Morehead says he's seen it himself, and so is his daughter. Well, I, all I can say is, you know, that's what he says. I, I didn't see it, but it, it's really uh, strange to me. But I can tell you this. <clears throat> About nearly 30 years ago, I got a call from somebody wanting me to raise money to go dig up a, a Bigfoot. Well, what's what's this all about? I said, well, uh, these two guys were out hunting up in Canada, and they saw a bear uh, just off the, the edge of the, the river they were uh, uh, in a boat on, and they shot it and killed it. So they got out of the boat, went up there, and when they got to it, they were mortified that it was a Bigfoot about nine feet tall. Said, oh my lord, what are we going to do? So they went into the nearest town, rented a backhoe, came back out, dug a hole, and buried the thing. So he didn't disappear into thin air. They buried the body. And what they wanted me to do was raise money so they get a helicopter, go back up there, and dig down and get something, get a toe, get a piece of the scalp, anything, so they could do DNA uh, before the bears get in there and dig it all up and would eat it. <clears throat> So that's one. Uh, There's a story that there was an interview by John Worms 
from Canada, like a warm bed, John Warren uh-huh. interviewed an old man about 93 years old who finally was willing to tell his story of when he was about 17 up in Canada. They're out, out hunting elk, I believe. And back then, you know, you kind of had to hunt or survive. And he sees an elk and shoots it. When he gets up there and he sees it laying on the ground, he sees the back end of it. So he shoots it again to make sure it's dead, right? Gets up okay. to it, and it's a Bigfoot. He's killed a Bigfoot who's brown. And he just takes off. And I don't know if he told anybody then, but it took a long time to tell the story. And he was reticent even then, but he told the story. That's what happened. Okay, so he didn't disappear. <clears throat> I interviewed a fellow out here, a cowboy, uh, who was in the area of Matador, Texas. <clears throat> Matador is just cowboys and ranching. It's, I mean, there's nobody out there. It's nowheresville, and and you don't know what's out there. So it would be a perfect place for Bigfoot. So this guy and his brother back in, uh, I don't know, 67, 8, somewhere back in there, maybe in the 70s, they had heard about this Bigfoot. Their mom had seen it, and it was sort of a whitish color. It smelled real bad. So they went in there looking for it, and here the thing comes out of this, this grove of trees, which he took me to and showed me the grove of trees. And so they started shooting at it, and I, I said, well, do you, you sure you hit it? And he got really upset. He said, yeah, we're dead shots. We didn't miss it. So we shot it 25 times of high-powered ammunition. His conclusion was it's not of this world, and this is not a, this is not some UFO guy. This is a cowboy. Uh, well, I said, how hey, you know it didn't die? Well, he didn't know. Okay, so <clears throat> do they go into a portal, or do some of them? Do some of them die and lay there? I, I asked this Bigfoot guy one time. I says, so why don't we find the bodies? They get hit by cars. They get shot with guns. Where are the bodies? He says, well, apparently they dispose of their dead. And what does that mean? Well, there are tribes in uh, other countries, I think, in some of the island countries. They eat people, okay? They eat their bones. So if, if human beings like us can do that, what's to say a Bigfoot couldn't eat one of them and completely get rid of it? Here's another thing that's kind of gross, and I apologize to the ladies out there, but it's like, well, why don't you find these big animals? Why don't you find their droppings all over the place? <laughs> this guy told a very strange story. He, says, he said they find a rock, and they go on the rock. Then they throw it, and they can throw really hard, and it scatters it all over the place so you don't see their droppings. I said, that sounds, that sounds believable. So <laughs> they're okay. a strange, strange animal. Okay. And, and, and to change subjects a little bit, uh, get get back to the uh, conference. When yeah, you and um, Dr. Burton, uh, Dr. Judkins uh, are talking about. The Giants. Uh, you know, we know from the North American mounds that uh, you know, there's a majority of the skulls had cranial deformation. 
Um, did the biblical characters like Goliath um, also have the deformed heads, and then you know, you also, you know, and you've also done some work with the uh, uh, making casts of the uh, Paracas uh, skulls. What? What's your interpretation of these different head shapes, and you, know, you get all the you know, like different sutures and all that? It, are, are all those different uh, between the uh, giants from the different continents? Well, <clears throat> what was the shape of, of Goliath's head? We, you know, that's an interesting question. We don't know. They had it. You know, it probably was kept. For a long time, and then something, you know, they somebody comes in and destroys their their city. But <clears throat> he was over there. He knew about, had to have known about uh, Nefertiti and her children. They all had extremely long heads with extremely big brains. So that's a question we're always asking: Are these genetic, or are they uh, recapitulating their ancestors' shapes? You know. Uh, <clears throat> So, well, maybe, but it's all done with the women. You know, the women have the babies, and they're with the baby all the time. In order to get a, a to, to deform a skull, you've got to wrap it when it's born, and you wrap it a little too tight, and you keep wrapping it for about a year, year and a half, and you can get several shapes out of a child's skull because it's 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 uh, sort of soft and fluid till they're about a year and a half old. So... <clears throat> Okay, maybe that's the way they did all of them. I We don't think they did all of them that way. We've looked at quite a few of them. The problem is, on most of the long heads, and I've molded about four now, I guess, I've looked at a bunch more, uh, they, the, the frontal up here, uh, the coronal suture between the what should be the two parietals in the front of the skull, is always open. It's never fused. But the parietals are always fused. Either there was never two parietals or they're, and they're just one born that way, but they're always fused. And then most of them on the back of the head where the occipital con, uh, connects to the, the uh, uh, parietals, you've got all these extra bones in there that look like a, like, kind of like an amoeba. They, and they're actual separate bones. Uh, in the wormian there, what they call that, that suture pattern, you have these what they call Inca bones because it's, it's uh, prevalent in the Incan tribes. That's where you find this. Uh, they're not always long heads. Some of the normal skulls I looked at, in fact, I'm over the back of the head of one guy, and he had, I think, some uh, two dozen extra bones between the occipital and the parietal. And mm. some of them have extra bones up in the in the temple. Uh, one guy we looked at in a case, I didn't get to look at it, examine it. <clears throat> it had a big diamond-shaped bone the size of uh, like a, if you cut a playing card in half, a diamond-shaped bone uh, in the top of his head near the back. It was a separate bone. I go, what in the world is that? What, what does that mean? <clears throat> so 
does does the binding the head, if that's what they did, does that cause the uh, uh, the sagittal crest to close up? That that parietal suture is that does that close it up? Why didn't it close up everything else? Now why wouldn't it mess everything else up? And where do all these extra bones come from? And by the way, if bone count means anything, and that's evolution's based on a lot on bone count. Well, you know, you you just shouldn't do that because those people have more bones than we do. So does that make them more complicated, more complex, and more thus more evolved? You know, look at dinosaurs for crying out loud. They should never look at those things and say they're they're primitive and simple. You know, some of them have twice the bones we do. The ankylosaurs, the armored dinosaurs we were digging up on in Colorado, and uh, mm-hmm. some of the sauropods. There are two skeletons there. There's the exterior set of bones that covers the thing. Then there's a skeleton like everybody else has on the inside. And then they have a tail that doesn't just end in a little tiny bone. It ends in a big bone with three balls on it or three spikes or four spikes. And uh, in some cases, they've looked at those uh, balls down there, and they said this is an extra brain because you can tell the you can tell a brain cavity it's different than just a hole in the the body. There, it's it's it has a texture to it. So okay, wait a minute. You got two brains, you know? That's more than Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> <laughs> but really, um, the old salamanders out here that I've dug up, you know, in Texas, supposed to be our primitive ancestors, I guess. Well, then, uh, what happened to us? He's got more finger bones. He's got more tail bones. He's got a, a breastplate that looks like uh, art from the 1930s. It's sculpted looking. And he's got almost no uh, uh, shoulder blades. He's got this enormous breastplate and clavicles that look like three pieces of artwork stuck together with a complicated head that's, that's all kinds of pits in it, uh, all kinds of sutures tons of teeth that replace themselves that are complicated in themselves and and a third eye or a a, a pineal a, a third a second brain uh or at least a second eye but it goes directly into the brain so there's nothing simple about these things that is a myth put out by the darwinists who were ignorant of bones you know we think those guys knew something about science they didn't know very much they hadn't dug very much stuff up Old Darwin said, if we, we keep digging, we'll find that things are more and more simple. Well, we've dug plenty, fella. We've dug down way down there, and they don't get more simple. They're just as complex at the very bottom. So evolution is denied by, by Darwin himself. People should give it up. It's not happening. And I know that will make a lot of people mad, but I'm sorry. I've been in the business now over 40 years, and I ain't seen no evolving yet. <clears throat> Societies, cars, art. Uh, culture, languages, yes, they evolved. You know, uh, ladies' fashions evolved. You look at <laughs> look at TV shows with old Cary Grant back in the 20s and 30s. He looks just like he does in the 40s, 60s, 50s, and 60s. But the women's eyebrows go all over the place. Their hair does all kinds of things. Their, their dresses do all kinds of stuff. You know, <laughs> Cary, Cary Grant stayed the same. I guess he wasn't evolving. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's you know, still are uh, uh, people are still going deep sea fishing and catching coelacanths that so yeah. supposedly died millions of years ago, and they they're still yeah. the same. 
So it's like the alligator gar. The ones in the fossil record are just as complicated as the ones alive today in the, in the uh, creeks in Texas. And, and there again, you got two skeletons. You have the, the fish inside with always bones. His tail fins have so many bones in them. They got more bones in the tail fin than we've got in our entire body. And then he's covered in bones that look like scales, and they're all articulated. Look at his head. It's extremely complicated with these sharp little teeth that he probably replaces all the time. You know, he just forgot to evolve, or maybe he never did. The problem with coelacanth is because the evolutionists believe that the, the strata was laid down one layer now and 10,000 years later, here's another layer an inch thick. And then after a million years, here's a layer of foot thick. And finally we get, you know, a thousand feet of strata and it all built up over millions of years. Problem is uh, there are too many whole animals buried in those stratas that had they laid there for very long would never have been there. They would have disintegrated. They would have washed away in the next gully that, that formed in the next rain. <clears throat> And strata doesn't form that way anyhow. You get a flat strata laid down, a rain will come along and cut a gully in it. You know, you don't you don't see any of that stuff in the fossil record. It's it's just not there because there was no time passing it. Most of it was done during the flood. <clears throat> but the coelacanth, because they believe their own theory about millions of years, they said, well, there's uh, 80, 80 million years of strata here where there are no coelacanth bones. So therefore, they went extinct 80 million years ago. Uh-oh. Then uh, <clears throat> Mrs. Latimer found one out there in Madagascar, or went to, I guess, a market, and here they were catching these things and eating them. So there goes that theory. So if the coelacanth went through 80 million years of strata and didn't leave a bone, what else didn't leave any bones? Maybe a lot of stuff. Maybe that's just not a true story. I, you know, I've, I've seen strata all over the world, or at least a good part of the world. It denies the long, slow process that we think it takes to make strata. They, they proved it in laboratories. You'd run water with uh, sediment in it, different, different weights and different colors. And I watched it in Australia here a few months ago. Some people were doing the experiment over there. And these strata are laying down all at the same time all at the same time, and then you stop the water flow, and they'll start with the bottom on the top, and then start forming down at the bottom again. It's completely contrary to what the, the strata guy said back in the, you know, the last hundred years. It's just not the way it happened. <clears throat> it, That's my take on the coelacanth. Oh, uh, 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 you make a uh, valid case, Joe. Um, and speaking of strata, um, it causes us to look at uh, you know, time, uh, you, know, you get the evolutionists you know, saying you know, the universe was created billions of years ago, um, <laughs> You know the Christian uh, timeline isn't nearly that old. You know you get some you know like you know, variations of 
you know, within the Christian thought about time. And you know, yet some people <clears throat> saying that there really wasn't the um, time. is kind of go from like uh, dinosaurs to the pyramids and you know, the, the the Roman Empire. But it, it, when we've had uh, you know, one of our other biblical uh, I guess on uh, you know uh, Gary Wayne maybe you know him uh, you know, he, he uh, makes an interesting point that uh, there is an implied passage you know, like really early on like uh, like about the second or third passage in the book of Genesis um, where there's and uh, you know we should understand that the creation of the, the universe and everything in it wasn't done in six 24-hour days that we understand. There, there is a different uh, time frame in which God is working that we don't know, and you know it, that that could be extended to uh, you know, the aging process for some of the other biblical characters like Methuselah uh, living to be nearly. Um, a thousand years old. It, it, does that same concept apply to um, a, a Christian perspective of looking at prehistory with uh, dinosaurs and possibly humans living at the same time? Well, personally, I don't believe in prehistory. <clears throat> I think everything is historical. You know, the Bible tells us it's a historical book, and it says in the beginning God created all these things, and there was not mm-hmm. anything that was created that was not created by him. So if you're going to go with the Bible, that's it. God was there, and then he created the angels, and he created the the uh, the earth. He created all the animals and, and, and apes and people on the, on the sixth day, and then he rested. And, <clears throat> I mean, that's, it's a pretty simple reading of all that. Um, you know, for the last literally 50 years, I've been debating the gap theory. And that's kind of sounds like what you're alluding to there. That was between Genesis verse one and two, uh, there was this big time lapse in there, which explains dinosaurs and cavemen. I've tried to explain to people dinosaurs are alive today. And the reason we even have their bones in such beautiful shape, so many millions of them, is because they're buried in mud and volcanic mud flows. Instantly, they were buried immediately, and then a lot of them were buried, and a, a few weeks later, they're under 200 feet of, of, of sediment that's just been laid down, and a shock wave comes through during the flood, causes that layer to, to jellify, and it separates all the bones from these animals that have now desiccated because they're in liquid uh, mud, and so the born, their bones move, and you get the 
the heavy bones drop out first, uh, the lighter bones out last. Where you find that in South Dakota, some of those dinosaur beds up there go on forever. And they're, they're not scavenged. They're not a kill site. Uh, they're where the bones ended up after having been buried and then moved under mud. <clears throat> so the gap theory says that millions of years went by from the creation of the dinosaurs and the cavemen, which a lot of them say were black. You know, that's where the blacks come from. They somehow got through the, the fray. <clears throat> and... I try to say, look, go to go to the caves over there in Europe. They're limestone caves. They're sandstone caves. They were all that sediment is laid down in the flood. That's your flood layers. And then the, when the, the earth's covered in water, it sits there for you know a year or whatever. When God told the water to go back in the ocean, I guess He opened up the fountains of Great Deep. All this water went back in the the, the fountains. And it cut canyons all over the earth. That's why we have our massive canyons and these tall mesas that have layers in them. That's mm-hmm. the soft mud that cut through and left left all these layers, which are now hard. So uh, in the limestone, a lot of limestone does weird things. There's a lot of water in it, or was. So if you have an earthquake and a, and a crack goes through a certain layer of the limestone, well, it starts to bleed, but it starts bleeding water. And it melts the limestone and melts and melts and melts. And pretty soon you got a lot of it, and you have a lot of water running through, and it kind of drains the, the system. And eventually, after maybe 100 years, you've got this cave in there with water flowing through it, which stays temperate year-round. So right. that, that's, a, that's a product of the abatement. Well, what you find in there are Neanderthals and people like that. And these guys had to have been the descendants, like the great-great-grandsons of Noah and his sons, who were stalwart enough to come over to Europe. And the only place you could stay was a cave. The only thing you could eat was meat, because all the meat eaters, the big bison, the big bear, uh, the uh, uh, elephants, all that stuff, the big horses, they were eating all the fruit. So... If you want to live, you got to eat meat. Well, that changes you into uh, that does stuff to your your skull and your bones. Okay, the place to live is those caves. You can protect the front, uh, and there's water in there. It's 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 temperate enough to not freeze in the winter time. So, what are you going to do when it's a snowy day outside, or you know you're bored? You do what everybody else does: do graffiti on the wall, or you do a painting, or you make a quilt, and probably. They're probably making all kinds of stuff that we don't see now because they've disintegrated. Uh, their sculptures in clay are beautiful. I just did a painting of a Neanderthal uh, carving made out of mammoth ivory. I, I put it in an illustration of a Neanderthal man. And it's it's a carving of himself. It's a beautifully done piece of work about three and a half inches tall, made out of uh, fossilized ma- mammoth ivory. Uh, <clears throat> so... The drawings on the walls, you have any artist who's had no training in, in uh, how to draw a horse or a cow or something, put him in a cave somewhere and, and say, hey, draw me a buffalo. Well, he's going to have to rely on his memory or imagination. And I can tell you what it's going to look like. It's going to look stylized for the most part. Some of them will be pretty good. Some of them won't be. But for some of those um, 
there's a depiction of several bears over there and lions. Uh, somebody was like doing several, and then they'd move over a ways and do another one. Well, they're really accurately done. Somebody had a good eye for to uh, and a memory to been able to re re uh, capture that thing on a cave wall with with hematite red or or charcoal or something. These are not eight people. These are not halfway to human people. These are descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and they're they're look at their brains for crying out loud. Their brains are bigger than ours. Teeth were beautiful. They made beautiful artifacts. The artwork is beautiful. And when you get into the stylized stuff, if stylization is primitive, what are you going to do with all the Christmas cards uh, put out at Christmas time? You know, by living artists, it's so they're primitive because they draw deer with little pointed feet instead of two hooves. No, they're just being, they're stylizing something to entertain and please the eye. So when they draw those buffalo over there with the, the one line for a horn and then their bowed bodies, it's beautifully done. It's artistically beautiful. You know, unintelligent people don't do that. So my point is those people are not pre-Adamic. They're not pre-history. Those are historical people. And, you know, the dinosaurs, there are caves where dinosaurs are depicted. There's a place over there in Peru, for instance. A friend of mine went to it. And way up on a mountain up there, uh, you have to have a guard to go with you. On the on a, the uh, under an underhang overhang, there's this beautiful red chalk drawing of about ten men spearing a long-necked dinosaur. It's clearly a sauropod. It's not a lizard. It's not a llama. It is clearly a long-necked, long-tailed, fat-bodied sauropod. Well, how long have the Incas been over there? maybe two or 3,000 years, how could they possibly draw themselves killing that thing unless that's what they saw? So if you've got one of those things over there in Peru, you got the same thing in Utah. I did a drawing. I went up there with a clear piece of acetate and traced over two dinosaurs, two long-necked sauropod dinosaurs uh, there in, uh, in Utah, just like the one in Peru. And again, you know, you can't tell what that thing looked like from a few bone chips coming out of the ground. They had to see it alive. So this idea that dinosaurs and men and cavemen somehow can be explained by putting them in that mythical Megan's years between uh, Genesis 1 and 2 is not necessary. It's just not necessary. It doesn't fit the geological facts that I've seen. So that's my take on on, uh, the prehistory. Okay, and, and you also have the another sample of you know the Stegosaurus near the foundation of uh, was it Anchor Wat or one of those uh, uh, temples on uh, Samoa or. Uh, India. So, so, uh, okay, is that it? And, um, so I think the actual temple is called Tapram. Okay, and, 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 I, I, I'm, yeah, I, 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 I might have been uh, stating the wrong one. I, I, I know there's one in the like 
Asia, I- I- India area where there's a stegosaurus. Well, the temple was like built like somewhere around 800 AD, and, and it's yeah. you know an exact uh, depiction of a stegosaurus. And you see, uh, and I'm sure most of our uh, uh, listeners saw it on Ancient Aliens too. Uh, the the artist had to have seen a, a living replica of a stegosaurus walking through the jungles. Well, interesting enough, about 10, 15 years ago, Carl Ball commissioned an exact replica of that thing carved from the same sandstone that the original is carved from uh, by some Indian artist over there. It took him quite a while, but it is absolutely exact. It's like they molded the thing and then cast it, but it's actually carved. That ended up in the uh, Christ for the Nations Museum there in downtown Dallas. A friend uh, commissioned me to go make a mold of that column, which broke in transport, so they had it in two parts. So I molded that whole thing 11 feet tall, and that that, uh, stegosaur-looking animal is right at the the bottom of it. And all the other animals in there, it's pretty well obvious what they are, goats and and, uh, different kind of animals. Uh, so why wouldn't that animal be well, – why wouldn't that be what it appears to be? It does appear to be a stegosaurus. So there again, like you say, either they, you know, have great imaginations uh, or they saw the thing. You know, another thing that paleontologists have uh, uh, fallen to doing is the evidence has become so – Profound that yes, ancient man was actually in the last few thousand years was actually encountering, seeing, either killing and or drawing or depicting in sculpture all these supposed extinct dinosaurs. The evidence is so overwhelming that now they've got this concept of well, that's just in the DNA of the mind. Somehow we all can remember. Uh, having seen these dinosaurs and now it's just coming out what in these primitive people why didn't it come out with all the uh, college professors over here that are white and intelligent you know it's. <laughs> I'm sorry but you know I, I just don't, I don't buy that uh, I, I you know I just don't buy that I don't see any evidence of that it seems to me the simple explanation is they saw these things alive and they, they didn't go extinct Extinction is a myth of the evolutionist. Nobody knows what's extinct. You, you know, this, uh, some of the natives over there in uh, the Amazon, they don't know what's in the Amazon jungle. Uh, up north in Canada, uh, their place up there, you don't know what's up there. Nobody can find out. It's just too inhospitable to go. What to do, they don't come back. And uh, what reports we do have are, there are living mastodons that somehow can go into some cave system and survive the mass, the terrible winters. <clears throat> uh, so to say that things are extinct, you just need to say, well, I don't see an elk or a black bear here in Crosby, Texas. Uh, therefore, they're not here now, as far as I can tell. But to say they're extinct, well, that'd be foolish. <clears throat> that's, a, that's a dirty word, extinction. Okay, and so you're you have a photo of you at work doing um, when you, you know, making some latex uh, casts. 
in Ancient American Magazine edition 120, and it's these uh, uh, molds of uh, uh, maybe jars or uh, something found in a uh, like uh, a creek bed. It was a dried up stream. Uh, you did these in November of 2017. Uh, what's the story behind the, uh, you making those molds? Well, a friend of mine who's a, a he's a, actually has an office job, but on weekends or whenever he can, he goes out in uh, in the area up there in. Uh, uh, Oklahoma, Missouri, Kansas, that area, a lot of badlands up there, just see what's out there. And they often encounter evidences of Bigfoot and all that. Well, this old Indian fellow who's now deceased had told them about these strange uh, impressions in, in a sandstone layer, and that's all sandstone up there in that, that three-state area. <clears throat> and he told them, so they went out looking for it, and they were miles away. And just wandering around, and one of the guys uh, uh, looks over in the, the creek and under the water, hey, th- that's them. There they are. And so they go down there, and they drain the water that had kind of piled up there, cleaned it out, and uh, <clears throat> uh, called me, could you come make a mold of this this thing? So I went up there, and, and the other fellows had uh, taken silicone rubber, which you pour together and leave 24 hours, come back, and it's hard. He had poured that in all four of these these places where these objects had been, so he got an act, a really accurate cast of them. Then I came in and molded the whole thing in context, the depressions and uh, the context of the sandstone where they were. It's about four feet long by about two feet uh, uh, deep. And <clears throat> your first impression is, well, could someone have carved these? And you get down and look at them and go, no, there's no way they carved. They can't carve this stuff. Uh, they have hex head. There's a ball there, a bulb about as big as a grapefruit, kind of stretched out, with hex head nuts on either end of it, which were connected to pipes of some sort. And then mm-hmm. apparently they were all connected. At some point in the past, somebody came along and took a chisel and chiseled those things out and pulled them out and left these, you know, the sandstone broke up around them. So that's what I molded. Uh, it, it's so fantastic because this is supposed to be Pennsylvania sandstone, which is supposed to be 300 million years old. Okay. That, according uh-huh. to evolution, that's 300 million years before mankind could come along and make up something that looks like a plumbing, you, you know, pipe. And the only thing they said was around there were salamanders. Well, maybe he had advanced salamander school or something. I don't know. But these are obviously man-made, manufactured objects, all made from the, cast from the same mold and somehow were attached together, got buried in that sandstone when it was laid down. And then down the creek, there were three more. So this is not, you know, somebody said, well, they must have laid there in the, and uh, the sand formed around them and turned into sandstone. Go, that isn't happening. You don't see that anywhere besides that. 
right there is where the water comes in and rushes around a corner. So whatever was buried last rain gets uncovered this rain. Nothing could sink down in the sand there. It's impossible. And besides that, these other three objects, just like them, they're upstream. They're where the water comes down furiously right in the middle of them. There's no way that anything could ever settle down there and turn into sandstone. It's just impossible. But the problem is, is these are, they look like this plumber came and looked at it. He said, well, we were making stuff like that at, in the into the 1990s. And uh, he showed it to his dad. He showed a cast to his dad. He said, what are you doing, making copies of some pipe? He said, no, Dad, these are fossils. <laughs> yeah, well, they don't, you know, they look like plumbing pipes. And the problem is, how are you going to rectify that with, with uh, millions of years and man just coming along lately? What it does suit, though, is like the Bible says, the tubal cane before the flood worked in metals, all kinds of metals. He was a metalsmith and taught everybody how to work in metals. So that was all being done, and we don't even know what these things were. We don't know what uh, color they were. They, they left a black stain, which kind of indicates brass uh, or silver. Uh, I don't think they were ceramic. They had broken up. But there they were, and one of them is it, there's a uh, there's a second layer about four or five inches thick above this layer. It's completely gone. All you see is the the erosion cliff over here. But in there is one of these pipes that left the depression. All you see is the impression of the pipe. So I molded that too. So these things were in molded were in two layers, or or whatever. But there again, that pipe could not have, if, if that had been in some old, uh, uh, some oil field equipment or something from the 1920s, which was never in there, it still couldn't have formed sandstone in the, the hard cliff. It was buried there. I tried to get all kinds hmm. of, uh, creation of creation geologists to look at. They wouldn't even come look at the cast because they, they want to go out to the site. I said, well, I can't take it to the site. It's not my deal. And the rancher doesn't want people tra- trapping around in there and messing the place up. But, you know, the cast is accurate. Look at it, you know. And, but they wouldn't even do that. The first people I showed that, that to, I showed them the mole, which is um, uh, just like the cast, actually. But the first three people I showed it to were three evolutionists, three, paleon- three evolution paleontologists, two of the guys I knew, and one of them I didn't. They just happened to come by one Sunday afternoon when I was there and I unloaded these things just to get them out of my pickup. And I showed it to them. Uh, the older man, who was in his 60s, just stumbled and said, I, 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 well, I, I, oh, 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 I, I, he didn't know what to say. The other two guys didn't say anything. The young paleontologist, because they know me, they know I didn't fake it. They know they weren't looking at some cast, I mean, some. Some something that buried itself in sand. They knew they were looking at objects that had been in the sandstone, in their estimation, 300 million years. They were just like we're doing stuff today. So it's a real problem for, um, again, the evolution story just, just doesn't fit. It fits a biblical story. Okay, and you know, Joe, to continue to 
you know, it's this theme of getting people, you know, to keep thinking about history and so many of these uh, anomalies that you know, Barbara and I are trying to bring to uh, each each show, and uh, and uh, just wait for the show in a couple weeks, and you know, you get more corroborating information from Andrew with some of the uh, <clears throat> sculptures made by the Salutrians. But uh, it, anyhow, it, you know. One of the projects that you worked on that uh, I've been to, you know, pretty close to the area, uh, uh, and you know, people can see the in an interview on uh, YouTube. Um, it, you worked on the Burning Tree Mastodon excavation, and, and yeah, there. Is you know, some really compelling evidence that maybe this mastodon lived up until uh, a more recent time. Can, can you tell us a little bit of uh, uh, the background on that story? And uh, may, maybe after the show, people can go to YouTube, just type in Burning Tree Mastodon and watch Brad's discussion Brad Lepper. Brad Lepper's uh yeah discussion yep. of uh the excavation and yeah some of the conclusions well we can thank Brad Lepper I'm pretty sure he was the the archaeologist who was there and working on his degree they called him in they they discovered the thing with the back uh with the drag line clearing out a, a wet spot to make a, a 14 green water hazard they weren't expecting anything. All of a sudden, the bucket jumps up, and the guy stops, looks down there, and, oh, my gosh. He calls Sherman Byers, the elder. They get down there and dig around, and it's like a fossil beehive. It looks, you know, like a beehive. So, oh, that's exciting. So, they call the press, and there's helicopters and all kinds of stuff. They get to digging, and in the mud, it's just peat bog, in a peat bog, and here's a skull. Hey, we've got a dinosaur. Well, now everybody's really excited. And then they keep digging and they get down to the tusk. Well, the thing's got tusk. Oh, it's a mastodon. So cool. So they went ahead and just dug it up right there in 20-degree weather. And I guess they called in Brad. And there were these, the, the, the drag line guys, teenage boys are back there helping get dig the bones up. They're just pulling the ribs up out of the mud. And as I'm watching the video, I'm going, oh, no. All the epiphyseal caps are going to be lost because they pull the bone up, the cap, which isn't fused, comes off and it's lost. And a lot of them work. So one of the kids says, whoa, this smells like a sewer back here. And Brad had the presence of mind to say, stop. So he stopped it back there. Here's the thing's intestines, kind of a brownish, reddish thing. So they, they took them out and kept them frozen or kept them cold, took them to the lab. And Dr. Dan Fisher, I believe, was the guy that worked on them at the first. <clears throat> they took some of them out in, in room temperature, and under microscope, all these bacteria started to 
come alive. They weren't dead. They they, they were in so far. So it's like, wow, this is the oldest living thing in the world here. Well, they that made it really, really famous, and it finally sold for a lot of money. But <clears throat> that was thanks to Brad Leper. So they dug the whole thing up and uh, saved part of the matrix. There was a barrel full of the, the matrix right next to where I worked on the thing up there in Lincoln County uh, Museum back in 92 when I was there. So I was out at the Tucson Jimmy Mineral Show, I think, in 1991. Going to the room, here's this guy, Sherman Byers. He's there with his with uh, one of the jaws and some other stuff. I said, wow, man, you ought to mold that stuff. He said, well, how much? So I sat down and figured up a price to mold the entire animal. And I didn't really figure on restoring it, but I had to restore it as well because they had damaged it with the backhoe and and uh, when they pulled it out of the ground. So I lived with that thing for five months. And uh, I put the tusks together on the bed that I slept in because I couldn't do anything else with them. So I glued them back together, put them back together, got them solidified with a plaster jacket, molded them, both halves, and then I, I was able to cast those. But... <clears throat> Uh, so I worked on the whole thing. Then we, we molded the entire animal. I had a little help from some local guys and a girl from Texas. Molded it and uh, molded down into the nostrils, up into the tusk socket, which was, as far as I know, never done before. Uh, it was an elaborate mold and a fabulous specimen. I had to restore the back of the skull because they knocked part of it off with the backhoe where the, what looked like a beehive was. So uh, while I was working on it, Dan Fisher found that uh, it had cut marks on the ribs and all the toes were missing and the long tail was missing. Well, that's, that's a skinning pattern. If you're going to skin an animal, you don't need the long, you know, you pull the long tail off of the bones. You pull the toe bones off with the, with the, the hide and you, you, end up cutting near the ribs so it had been butchered and skinned so okay it's laying on its side and they want us to believe the hopewell indians which are the size of modern day men six feet tall or less they want us to believe the hopewell indians killed this thing and butchered it in fact one of the leg bones one of the femur were uh was uh found about 100 feet away Back in the 1930s, some guy found it sticking out of the peat bog, kept it behind his bar, and it finally disintegrated. But he remembered what it was. He was brought to the site and told them, yeah, that bone right there, was that's what we found, looking at the other leg. <clears throat> so, okay, this big elephant's laying on its side. It's enormous, bigger than a modern-day uh, African. And who's going to skin that thing? Not, not Hopewell Indians, not us. But if you're 10 or 12 or 15 feet tall, yeah, we can use that skin. Let's skin it. So they did. Well, they took the toes. They took the tail. And those giant men were able to use that as armor, shoes, tent. We don't know what what they did, but they could have skinned it, whereas we wouldn't have bothered. So, okay, how old is it? Well, they did a carbon-14 date on the inside of the right shoulder blade. Took a big chunk. And I can't call anybody a liar. I wasn't there. But I know that sometimes they'll date things till they get the date they want. You know, if you get a date on something and it says it's 500 years old, you throw that date out if it's a mammoth. 
they can't be living 500 years ago. So they finally got a date of 11,500 years ago. And I'm going, you know, I don't believe that because how did that bacteria in its intestines stay alive longer than we've been a country uh, before the crusaders went across the world, uh, before the crucifixion of Christ 2,000 years ago, the flood 4,500 years ago, the creation of the earth 6,000 years ago, and now you won't believe it's been that peat bog for another 5,500 years, and the bacteria never died. You know, I, I feel like an idiot if I believe that. I'm sorry. Maybe all some of y'all believe that. I don't believe that at all. I think they killed it probably within the last three or four hundred years. And because it's in a peat bog, it was able for those bacteria to live that long. Eighty-four kinds of mammal intestinal bacteria. Eighty-four kinds. The stomach contents were there. If they would have known what they were doing, if they were looked, they probably could have found pads of the feet, maybe. Well, not that, but they could have found maybe part of the trunk. The tongue, possibly. They found the tongue bones. All uh, three tongue bones were there. And uh, <clears throat> uh, there was a gallstone in its stomach or intestines somewhere. They found that. So, no, he wasn't killed 11,000 years ago. He was killed by the giant men, or they watched him die. He was, he was injured in a fight with another bull. He had a broken jaw. His left jaw was broken. And... One of his ribs was had been broken by another bull puncturing, trying to puncture his lung probably. Uh, his uh, lower back, I discovered a broken bone in there, and I discovered a, a broken bone in the neck. So that guy had been worked over bad by, by probably a, another bull, which was bigger, stronger, and their tusks never cross over. So they're like fighters their entire life. They're dangerous animals. And so he went to the peat bog. His jaw was broken, in my this is my opinion, so he could swallow water without going anywhere. He could eat flowers and stuff that he could just swallow without chewing, because that's what they found in his stomach, wasn't what he's supposed to have been eating. And he stood there and bled to death. And I believe the giant men who built those big uh, those earthworks in there, I believe they watched they they saw the fight. And they just said, just wait, just wait till he dies. He's in the peat ball. Well, just wait till he dies. So when he finally succumbed, they went over there and skinned him, carried one of the legs off, and uh, probably left it there. And it probably stayed good that in that cold water for maybe, who knows, a few weeks or months. And then he just left the rest of the skeleton there. And it because it's a verdant area, all the grass and the leaves and stuff grows really profusely. And it finally covered him over and another four or five feet of, of the leaves. So, you know, but you can't have a mastodon being killed three or 400 years ago because that messes up evolution because he's the one that the, that the mammoth was supposed to evolve from, and the Asian elephant, and the Asian elephant is what we have today. Well, then you can't have the mastodon living down to today. That messes up the whole story. So, you know, I'm sorry, I don't have a degree to protect. I don't work for a college. Uh, nobody can fire me, so I can say what I think. <laughs> okay, and you'll be saying what you think as well as several other speakers this upcoming weekend, Friday and Saturday night in Lubbock, Texas. 
Um, what what are some of the other presenters going to be talking about? You know, you've given us some really compelling stories about uh, de-evolution might be a subject that might be more valid in studying history than evolution. Uh, you know, what, what are some of the other topics going to be discussed uh, uh, I think along with giants? Yeah, I think Dr. Michael Heiser is, uh, <clears throat> he could talk about a lot of stuff. He's into all the stuff he knows about it. The DVD I've seen of him was called, uh, I believe it was Debunking or Refuting Ancient Aliens about six or eight years ago. So a lot of this stuff about ancient aliens, UFOs and all that, that's going to be some of his subject matter. And he may may or may not debunk it, but I think he probably will in some respects say, look, this just isn't what it appears to be. Uh, Derek and Sharon Gilbert, I'm, I can't remember what Sharon's talking about, but Derek has written a book on a lot of the um, ancient gods and goddesses and fared out a lot of information about that, try to make connections. And I probably don't agree with a lot of his stuff, but he's done a lot of work on the ancient myths and, and all that, which probably aren't myths. So it should be really fascinating stuff. Uh, I don't know uh, Greg Reed. I, yeah, I do. Uh, he's going to talk about oh, some really heavy stuff last time. I'm not sure about this time. It has to do with uh, sort of like forensics and murders and things. And really heavy stuff, uh, not for little kids. Uh, Doug Hamp is on Facebook, did a lot of stuff on Giants, I believe, and uh, other other questions. Aaron Judkin, I think, is going to talk about his work uh, going to Mount Ararat, looking for the Ark, uh, <clears throat> the Qumran Cave uh, expedition he was in. And he's, there's a lot of stuff he could talk about. Uh, Judd Burton has started a new school. Uh, he's quit his professorship job. Is now going to be uh, doing a school somewhere down around the Dallas area, I think. He's going to talk about that, I think. He's also going to talk about the historical timeline of where did all these uh, giant legends come from? Why do we have all these temples in South America? Uh, how does it relate to the biblical giants, the Nephilim? And, 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 and he may be bringing up a bunch of other stuff, but all these guys, all of us can speak on 20 different subjects. So it should be very interesting time. Okay. And if, uh, you know, there's a little uh, break you know, for, for lunch in there, you know, the conference ends early. Uh, people can go to the uh, Buddy Holly Museum. Is that uh, pretty close by? Yeah, that's Lubbock. not far away. It's not far. <clears throat> Nothing's very far in Lubbock. It's kind of Crosby, you know. You got so much stuff in Lubbock, it's all right there. Everything's there. <clears throat> uh, yeah, that's a good little museum. And uh, the Texas Tech Museum, I don't know what their hours are over there, but they've got a lot of cool stuff. They got all the wrong dates on it. <laughs> that cool stuff. They even have one of my murals over there. I painted a mural of West Texas history, West Texas music, about 25 years ago, in panels. Oh wow! Uh, cataloging kind of the history of how it went from uh, the old uh, fiddle guys 
down to uh, Buddy Holly and uh, the uh, the Flatlanders, the last big stars of Lubbock. So that's in there, at least parts of it is. And uh, <clears throat> uh, it's a cool museum. There's uh, other other museums there. A lot of stuff to see in Lubbock. But the restaurants are great, man. You got no end of great restaurants. Cool. And uh, you know the Mount Blanco Fossil Museum. You know, your museum is just a short drive away from Lubbock. Is is, is that right? I'm 30 miles east of Lubbock uh, by the map. 32 miles, 30 30 minutes from the the international airport. And I'm going to be there on Thursday because some of the some of the people that are coming want to be come look at the museum. Even though I still don't have it fixed up from all the damage done by the big hails last year and all the water damage, we're, we've about got that fixed, but it's still kind of in disarray. But they can still see a lot of cool stuff. So I'll be there Thursday uh, if anybody wants to come by and look at it. Then, of course, Friday I'll have to be going to the conference, and I speak at 1.30 on Friday, and then the rest of the guys speak. Uh, Saturday morning till the afternoon, then we break and everybody goes goes out and eats or something. But I'll be there Thursday at the museum at, at 124 West Main, Crosbyton, Texas. It's a, you can't miss it. <clears throat> okay, and what can people see when they uh, come to your museum on Thursday? What, uh, what what are some of the megafauna and dinosaur bone displays you you have there? Well, you see bones of the sauropods we were digging on out in uh, the western slopes. Some of the field jackets, some of the bones. Uh, we show people what the stuff looks like when it comes in out of the ground, you know, because you don't always see that. There's a giant uh, tortoise. Uh, Bones, uh, two skulls of two unicorns, one from China, one from Amarillo. Uh, there we go, Barbara. Hello. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, you know, speaking of, speaking of unicorns, there's, uh, there are horses with two horns. I've never seen one with one horn. I'm not saying there aren't. There probably were. I just haven't seen the bones of it. But there were unicorns, and they're they're rhinoceros. They're one-horned rhinos. Uh, that's why they call them one-horned rhinos. You know, and you find them in China, all over the place. I think you find them in the Middle East, but you find them up in, around Amarillo in that area. And they're when the Bible talks about uh, mentions a unicorn, looks how he skips. But if you've ever watched a rhinoceros run, they're like a ballerina. They they run gracefully. Uh, it's it's amazing how they can run. But it's a, it's a big, uh, clumsy-looking animal, and they had they the the ones that supposedly are extinct had one horn. So how is it that the Bible could be talking about the one-horned rhino if they weren't alive to see? It's like behemoth. How could Job have described a sauropod dinosaur if he hadn't seen it? Same way with, um, you know, the Bible that says you shouldn't eat all these things. The kumarat, the this or that, uh, pigs, you shouldn't eat, bats, and fowl like shell, that go up on the shellfish, shellfish etc. Then it talks about the fowl that goes on its all fours. You go, what bird, what flying creature 
goes on its all fours. Well, pterodactyls do. They walk on their knuckles. When they're walking, then they fly. So how is it that the Levitical law would forbid forbid eating something which has gone extinct? Now, pterodactyls, according to the people in uh, Mexico and, and in New Guinea, they're really nasty animals. If they defecate or urinate on you or spit on you, you're in big trouble. And they dissolve the flesh right down through the, the cells. So, yeah, don't wow. eat them. And they're, they're nasty animals. But how would the, why would the Bible prescribe those things if they weren't alive and needed to be avoided? So, again, people that think this stuff's extinct, they just don't, they just don't know. This is, they need to study more. Okay. Uh, and but, minute, one more oh, thing, the, two, the two-horned horse. Mm-hmm. There's a horse skull somewhere in the American Museum of Natural History that has two horns on its head. You think, oh, that's weird. That couldn't possibly be. Yeah. He used to pull a cart. He used to pull a wagon in New York City in the 30s. And the people there at the museum said, now, when that thing dies, let us know. We want the bones. So Mr. Chubb's horse died with the two little horns on his head, and they rendered him out. Somewhere in that vast archives is that horn, that horse with two horns on his head. Interesting. Uh, Barbara, ha- ha- have you learned a lot tonight about reevaluating? I, I, absolutely, I, I, I absolutely have. I just wish I was close enough to go to the conference. Well, I wish you could, yeah. too, maybe next time. Maybe I will be closer. Hopefully I'll be in Nashville next year, so that's a little closer. We're sure it's home, folks. <laughs> <laughs> And that next words we got here. <laughs> and you know, speaking of uh, the four-legged fowls, um, you know, we had a you know a little promotion last week for the Mothman Museum and Festival. Cool. Uh, you know, we have another uh, show on that subject cu- coming up. Uh, what? Uh, what the twenty August twenty seventh, um, but you know, Joe, you've also been studying the highway uh, what six fifty one, where there have been a number of sightings of some flying humanoids and other strange anomalies, uh, some. Unusual creatures being uh, seen there. Uh, what's what's going on? This seems like a one of those hotbed areas for uh, high strangeness. Yeah, well, that's that's when I, I I grew up here and I knew a lot of this stuff. But as I began to get into it, and I these people started telling about their encounters with Mothman. Uh, you know, now there's been like five or six sightings right here. One lady's hit either one or two of them twice. She hit it with a car, and I just found this last thing out here a few a few months ago. So I'm going to be talking about Mothman, not not in detail, but I'm going to bring it up. We need to be looking at the end of this. Is this a Nephilim candidate? Yes, I think so. Is it? Well, we really don't know. Is it some some bird? Is it some demon? Is it some animal? 
Uh, is it a hybrid? I don't know. Let's find out. There's a lot to know about it. So there's that, Bigfoot, uh, UFOs, all kinds of stuff. Along 651 out here in where I grew up, down in the canyon, a couple of weeks ago, this uh, cowboy called me up. And, again, this is the guy. These guys don't make up stories. They don't have to. They don't do that. And I went out there and spent hours with him. He showed me where they saw these lights, these balls of light that, uh, that run around out there in the canyon at night. Sometimes they'll follow them. He said one of them came through the yard, went around between the house and the barn, as big as a basketball, a blue light. Well, man, I don't know what that is. I, I just can't tell you what that is. It's, I, I don't know. I believe you. I have no idea what it is. Well, that's also down there in uh, – there's pterodactyls been seen down in that area. And uh, back oh. in uh, – I was in high school. There was a thing, uh, pardon the expression, but all the kids uh, said, you got to go out to Nigger Hill and see the lights. Because there was this black cookie that was uh, killed out there by an accident. And so they buried him out there, and they said, well, that's that black guy out there looking for his head, right? These lights, he's carrying a lantern. Well, the lights were real, and what they are, I honestly don't know. I never saw them myself, but there were these lights that just floated around out there in the canyon, and uh, a lot of people saw them. Nobody could explain them, but they're just right off of 651, and uh, so there you are. So I've started this little deal, and we're going to gather more and more information, maybe have another conference if I can get some manpower in here. As it's a fascinating subject, and right out here in the middle of Nowhereville, you know, you got farms and cowboys, and here's uh, UFOs cutting down trees. <laughs> Please. <laughs> so we're going to talk about it. Okay. Uh, yeah, Barbara, I think you need to do a live live reporting from the next conference. Sounds like a good yeah. plan to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe blog talk will pay for you to go, go out there. I'll check with well, management. Well, this uh, this cowboy <laughs> said, "If y'all, this cowboy said, if y'all to come out here and sit out there on a hill at night, so I guarantee you'll we'll see something." So uh, I said, "Okay, I think we better do that at some point." <clears throat> Get a camera. <laughs> yeah, we'd be glad to have you uh, return and uh, yeah discuss that in more detail. And another, you know, we're down to I don't know about five minutes or so. Uh, you know, one of the uh, topics you know we got into a little bit with. Uh, uh, Scott Walter, when he was on with us a couple months ago, and uh, is based on uh, one of the episodes of his new series, and you know, you've t- touched on it a little bit tonight. Is uh, to some of these um, inland seas in uh, you know covering uh, Texas and part of the desert southwest area. Yep. You, you, you know, what have you uh, learned about you know, the, uh, the fish in, in, in these um, seas? 
there was a guy came here a few years ago and he said, uh, somebody said, I need to come talk to you because I'm looking for the lost sea. I said, you stand right in the middle of it. This is the lost sea. And all the way from the bottom of Texas, all the way up into Kansas, there are these giant fish, 15 feet long, sephaconids, with monstrous teeth. Sometimes they've got another animal inside they've eaten, or their mouths were open, suffocating, and the fish went in and to, to save themselves and both died together. But uh, they're, they're complete. Anybody knows today, if you don't know anything about oceans, a whale dies in about oh, a few months or a year, his bones are scattered, the worms have eaten him up. They don't preserve. How is it you've got thousands and thousands of these giant fish and other fish that are preserved in the, the gray and the yellow chalk up there with every bone in place? Sometimes their scales are there. Unless you had an immediate catastrophic something happened. And that those layers are flat from one end to the other up there, which can and it's it can only be done by world covering water. Well, there is there you get back to the problem of the worldwide flood, whereas I talked about in the Bible. So you must be a religious nut if you believe that. Yeah, that's right, religious nut. But go look at the fish. Don't take my word on it. Go up there and dig them up yourself. You know, we we dug a bunch of them up there, and they're everywhere in Kansas. They're billions of clams. They're as big as your head and sometimes five feet tall that are buried in layers by the billions with a B, as in boy. You know, that isn't happening today, but that whole area up there all the way down to Texas is, 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 uh, is like that, all these live animals buried. So <clears throat> the, the, old, the ocean died in here, and the only reason it would die is because the atmosphere decompressed. When the windows of heaven open up, I'm sorry, that's back to the Bible. Well, too bad. The Bible talks about the decompression of the atmosphere when the windows of heaven opening up. All the rain came down. Well, you find it in the, the fossil bed. That's what's creating. Okay. And, uh, Joe, we're down to uh, about a minute. Um, if people want to find out more about this uh, conference, uh, where, where where do they go? Uh, they can go to uh, BurtonBeown.com, and uh, you'll, you'll see the uh, – uh, on my Facebook uh, page, uh, Joe Taylor – there's a, a thing there about the tick belaying, the horse-headed man I'm going to talk about. And uh, at the bottom is Burton and Beyond, BurtonBeyond.com. Click on that. That takes you to the conference site, and you can find it from there. Okay. All right. Uh, and the conference is th- this Friday and Saturday. Uh, j- just sounds really Thought-provoking, inspirational, uh, faith-based experience in Lubbock, Texas. Okay, uh, Barbara, you want to wrap up? Anything? We're just- I sure <clears throat> be happy to. Be happy to. Want to thank everybody for joining us tonight. We certainly appreciate your listening to us, sharing your time with us. Don't forget to go and. 
subscribe to the channel on YouTube when this goes up tomorrow. And thank you to our guest and to Mark for being such an amazing host. Tune in again. Check out the website. You'll, you'll be able to see when all of the shows are. That would be BarbaraDeLong.com. Good night, everybody. <laughs>